This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, it's really good to be back. It's actually really great to be back. So, and it's nice to see you all here. There's a few unknown faces to me, which is extra nice. So there's some people to meet, and many of you I already know. You're probably aware that I was abroad for almost three months. I spent a, a month in Israel teaching, and then I was in France for almost a month, but actually only about half of it was teaching. Then I thought, if I'm going to go that far to teach, and it just happened to be only an hour away from those caves that have those, you know, mammoth and bison and, you know, those old Cro-Magnon caves, that it would be ridiculous to go that far and to see only the retreat center. <laughs> so I stayed extra and visited the caves, which was fantastic. I mean, it really blows the mind about time and just... I don't know, it's mind-blowing to be in the presence of those, something so ancient and so exquisitely beautiful as those incredible drawings and paintings on those walls. And then I went to England for a month of retreat practice. So I've been away, and I'm back. I still have jet lag, but I'm here. Fortunately, I didn't have to decide what to teach because we planned the topic before I left. So the liberating path. What's the liberating path? Usually we talk about the liberating path or we talk about the path of Dhamma or we talk about the path of practice. We usually refer to the Eightfold Path. Have you all heard of this Eightfold Path? Now, if you came to Drew's talk, I know you heard it because I listened to his talk online. <laughs> so I know he already mentioned the Eightfold Path. So if you started out the series, you'll know that we started the series with the Four Noble Truths, which was more or less your topic. And the Eightfold Path was the fourth noble truth included in that set. And now we're winding up the series with a greater or more specific articulation of that path. But I actually like to speak about the path Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. Age. I turned 50 about a week ago. <laughs> I can't see you, and I can't see this at the same time. It didn't happen all at once, but I've sort of had to face the fact. <laughs> I think I got worse in the last couple of months, maybe even in the last week. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to pass around in a few moments this list of lists, but I want to mention just a couple of quotes because I like some of the discourses and how the Buddha talked about it. But the first quote I want to refer to is not from the discourses of the Buddha, and it's not from a famous teacher, and it's not from a Dhamma book. It's from Insight Meditation South Bay's Articles of Incorporation. From our Articles of Incorporation, our mission, our purpose for being here. The specific purposes for which this corporation is organized are to promote the liberating teachings of the Buddha as expressed through the development of virtue. And I even wrote Pali into the Articles of Incorporation, so the Pali term is sila. That's in parentheses. The, te the development of meditation, samadhi, and the development of wisdom, panya, 
and to encourage spiritual awakening in ways that include but are not limited to providing instruction, guidance, and opportunities to practice meditation, studying and contemplating the teachings of the Buddha and Dhamma, and reflecting upon community and individual choices in the light of Buddhist values. And you'll notice that those last three are just the same three, but samadhi, panya, and sila, just in a different order. That's our reason for being. That's what we do. This is so central in the path that when you tune into the Eightfold Path and the three trainings of virtue, the development of mind or concentration or meditation, and wisdom or discernment or right understanding, then you'll understand that this is actually the essence of the Buddha's teaching. Um, Lama Suryadas described the Eightfold Path as The Eightfold Path taught by the Buddha can be said to be an eight-step recovery program for samsara-holics. To recover who and what we truly are and recover our basic sanity and authentic, purposeful life. The Eightfold Path and the three trainings are basically the same thing. One is divided into eight And those eight are clustered into groups of three. I usually use the set of three because it's easier. It's three. Eight is just a little bit more challenging for the brain. But it's important when dealing with three that we know that it means the eight. Then if we look at the eight, we know that under each aspect of the eight, there's a sublist that defines it in greater detail. So we kind of can th- think of it as these different schemes of sila, samadhi, panya, then it's divided into the eight, and then each of those eight items has a sublist of two or four or six or whatever the, the sublist is. And I'll give you the paper that has it all written down. But this system of the three came in the Anguttara Nikaya when there was a monk who found it was too hard to remember all the rules. Now, the monks have 227 or something like that, and the nuns have 300 and something rules. So it's really hard. It's a lot harder than remembering the eight. But they have to deal with all these different training rules in their practice because that's part of the monastic life, is to use the discipline, the training discipline, as part of their practice. It structures their practice. It's what they develop one way of developing the practice. And so in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said, um, taught, these, taught this monk who had trouble remembering the training rules, he said, don't worry about them, just remember three, the training in higher virtue, in higher mind, and higher wisdom. So here we have Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, the three trainings. All these three trainings of higher virtue, higher wisdom, and higher mind are basically the equivalent of the monk's rules. And it's the path, it's what we do, it's what we develop, it's the, what's called the bhavana, or what we bring into being, what we cultivate. It's the practice that we do. And so for a monastic, they wouldn't just divide it into all those sublists, they might understand it as the very discipline of their practice. And for a lay person, we understand it as the very discipline and the structure of our path of practice, what we do to practice. So I want to pass this around. 
Now, there's more people here than I think I brought papers for. So if you came with somebody, a friend or a spouse, and don't mind sharing a paper, it'd be nice if they distributed through. Now, you're not going to have to actually read this because I just want to have you have a piece of paper, especially if you're new to practice, then this might be more useful. If you don't get a paper tonight and you want one, it's on our website. We did a little project with a bunch of senior, senior members of our group about was it a year or two ago, where we took all, a bunch of the, the Buddhist lists and developed tables and charts with them on it and then posted them on the website under the teaching section. So you can just print out a PDF of it if you'd like. So you'll see that the column on the left is the Eightfold Path. We have Right View, Samaditi, Right Intention, Samasankapa, and on the back, Right Speech, Right Action, Right Livelihood, Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Concentration. You'll see that before each word in Pali, there's this term, Sama. Now, we usually translate sama as right, but sama really refers to a collectedness, being together, being together as one. And having that sama before each of the terms informs us that this is a path that comes together. It's right when when the whole path comes together. We don't have just one practice. We can't just pick out and say, okay, I'm going to practice the path by doing right speech. For right speech to be right, to be sama, it must be informed by right view and right intention. It must lead to and be an act of right action. It supports the right livelihood and the, there's the right effort, the right mindfulness and the right concentration embedded in that act. If we're going to say, okay, my path, I come to meditation, I really want to practice mindfulness. Well, okay, we can practice mindfulness, but what makes it right mindfulness? What puts that mindfulness practice into a path and a context that has the potential to free us from suffering, that has the potential to liberate us, rather than just increase or heighten our attention? There's something special about mindfulness when it is right mindfulness. And that specialness is the way it functions together in this path, where it's informed by a right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's supported by right effort and right concentration. So whenever we're working and developing one of these aspects of the path, we're really developing them all. We're developing the whole path of practice. And that's what makes it liberating. There are times in our practice where we're going to say, okay, this month I think I'm really going to focus on one aspect, maybe right action or right speech. Or we're going to just start to really observe what kind of a perspective or view we bring to our experience. Is that view right view? And so we might focus sometimes from a practical perspective on different ones. Sometimes I'll speak and teach different ones because we can't talk about all eight every time. There's too much to teach. But whenever we talk about anyone and whenever we practice or focus on anyone, please remember that it's embracing the whole path, the whole path of practice. So under each one, we have a sublist, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. But then you'll see the last category, or the last column, blocks them out in terms of the aspects of panya is first, the wisdom. 
And then sila, the ethical conduct, and the mental discipline, the samadhi. Now, when we look at it as the three trainings, why does wisdom come first? When we bring the first aspect, when we look at what these are, right view and right intention, we can see that there's a natural sense that when we have a perspective on things, our perspective is clear. If we're seeing things clearly with wisdom, then what's going to come out of that, our engagement with it, is going to be clear. It's going to lead to wholesome things. But if we're if we don't see it clearly and we're bringing deluded thoughts to the situation or unwholesome intentions, then we're going to cloud whatever action comes out of it. It's going to be distorted or confused. And so in this sense, we can see wisdom really coming first in this process. And yet, even though I say it comes first, they all come together. So we have to think of them not as a sequence in time, but as a kind of logical sequence that can be spread out over time, although they all support each other in any particular moment. So when we look at right view, here we have the the cognitive aspects, the, the wisdom that can comprehend what are the causes and conditions for things. Every action, if there's a result, there were causes. And it requires some discernment and some wisdom to consider, this is happening now. We may not be able to know exactly what every cause was that conditioned this experience, but we can look and have some sense of what conditions came together to cause this particular experience. Now, a diagnostic process often goes through this, right? You have a symptom and you try to figure out the cause because to relieve the suffering, it's really helpful not to just deal with the present symptoms but to try to get to the root cause. And in this sense, the Buddha is described almost often as a doctor who is trying to find the source of the problem. He identifies the source and cures the source of the problem. The source of the problem, what is the primary cause of suffering? Who was listening to Drew's talk a few weeks ago? Oh, you were, you were there. Okay, you were listening. What, did, what was the primary cause of suffering, the second noble truth? Craving. Thank you. Craving. Yes, yes. So craving, and with craving comes clinging and attachment. This causes tremendous suffering. And so the Buddha identified this cause of suffering. And then with discernment, we can look to and identify in our lives when we're perpetuating patterns that are going to lead to more craving and more suffering, or when we're engaging in life in a way that is free from those patterns that perpetuate suffering. So understanding causes and conditions, understanding the Four Noble Truths, uh, that there is suffering, and suffering must be fully understood. It must be comprehended. The cause of suffering is to be abandoned. We realize the end of the causes of suffering, and we cultivate the path to the end of suffering. These are the Four Noble Truths. That can sound academic, but it's not an academic thing. It's not something that you need to study, that you need to learn, that you need to memorize. Actually, memorize it. 
take that back. If you don't know it, memorize it. And you memorize it not because you can become a smart Buddhist, but you memorize it so that it it informs your perception. And then pretty soon, you'll find that you actually start to perceive experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths. When you hear something, when you see something, when you engage in something, when you're mindful of something, you're not just mindful of, oh, I'm hearing this, or I'm smelling this, or I'm thinking this. You're mindful of your response to it in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Is there suffering in this? Is is there clinging in this? Can that clinging be abandoned? What can be cultivated here? And you almost start to see experience, moment by moment throughout your day, simply informed by this perspective. That's right view, one aspect of right view. The third common understanding of the teachings of right view is to understand that all conditioned things are impermanent. You all knew that, right? But every time we grasp something, we've forgotten it. It's like every time we want this good experience to last, we've forgotten it. We've lost the perspective of right view. We haven't brought right view to that particular moment, and so clinging comes in, craving comes in. It's informed by ignorance. And so right view arises when we see things with wisdom and discernment. And in another moment, a second later, we might have lost the right view. And then it might come, come again. So it's this play of wisdom. It's not like, oh, I'm such a stupid person. That's way too much of a concept of self. But it comes in a moment of perception. Are we seeing things clearly? And then do we understand what we've seen clearly in the context of the path. Any questions about right view before I go on? Earlier this year, I did a six-week series on right view, so I guess you're all experts by now. (laughs) When I was in Israel, one of the retreats I taught, I did it as a study retreat. So we studied, did sutta study on right view and meditated for the weekend retreat, but it was great fun. There were 100 people on the retreat, And I gave them all the suttas to read during part of the day, and then we had discussions and questions, and I gave talks on right view. It was was really great. And sometimes sometimes the suttas are a little challenging when English is our first language, and it's especially challenging for people who English is their second language, and they're trying to read English, English translations of the suttas. Um, But not so many of suttas are in Hebrew yet. Some are, but we found, of all the ones I was using, we found only one in Hebrew. That's just an aside. Now, the other aspect of wisdom, of course, is right intention. It can also be translated, you'll see it as right thought. Right thought. And this thought, this aspect of volition, the thought that we have towards something, is, is important to observe. How do we think of things? What is our intention that we bring to an experience. So the right intentions are three. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, which often refers to loving kindness, and the intention of non-cruelty, which often is described as compassion. And of course, the wrong intentions would be their opposites, ill will, cruelty, and 
greed. Thank you. <laughs> so being sensitive to the intentions that we have is an area that we can bring our attention, our mindfulness. Before we speak, what is our intention that we're bringing to the conversation? It's a very important place to observe intention. And lo and behold, the next item is speech. So we have the perspective, we have the the intention now, and then how does that inner light, that inner perspective, that inner wisdom come out into our engagements in the world. So the aspect of sila here, ethical conduct, includes and embraces right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And the specifics of right speech include refraining from, you know, lies and slander and harsh speech and, you know, idle chatter. How much time is just wasted? Chatter, 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 chatter. Now, you don't seem like a chattery group, but I'll bet there are times when you're with somebody who's chatter, 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 chatter. I was on the train in, in, um, in England, and I, I signed up for the quiet car. You can sign up for the, the quiet car. I thought that meant a quiet car. I don't know what it meant. I don't know what made a quiet But the woman in front of me, oh, it means no cell phones? Oh, okay, it means no cell phones. Um, anyway, the woman in front of me, I think she didn't take a breath from all the way from London to South Devon. (laughs) And some people, it's hard to be quiet. And in fact, just the idea of being in silence is hard for people. You know, people tell me, oh, you're going to spend a month in silence? Aren't you crazy? Well, um, right action, not killing, not taking what's not given. It's a refined a thing of stealing. Sometimes we think of stealing as just having to break into somebody's house or sticking your hand into somebody else's purse. But this is not taking what's not given. It gives a greater regard for other people's property, other people's, uh, what they have done, what they have accumulated, what their wealth is. And then um, refraining from sexual misconduct. So we have right speech, right action, and then right like, livelihood. And right livelihood doesn't mean that you're just in the helping professions. For society to run, we have to have people skilled at everything who does it to do it well and responsibly. So it's not just right livelihood isn't really just about being a nurse or being a Firemen, I don't know what the helping professions are, you know, doing whatever the specific things are that are, that are like working at a nonprofit. Really, the understanding of right livelihood is much broader than that. It's basically to refrain from wrong livelihood. It's to refrain from any mode of livelihood that breaks the precepts, which means stealing and corruption. To refrain from dealing in weapons, dealing in living beings, working in meat production or butchery, or selling intoxicants or poisons. So things that directly cause harm. For a monastic, the livelihood has to do with how they go on alms round. That's their livelihood. That's how they sustain themselves. That's how they get their food and their needs met. So how they go on alms round is considered their livelihood. For us, how do we get our basic needs met? 
How do we get our food? How do we get our housing? How do we get our shelter? How do we get our needs needs met? What is our livelihood? So we'll have a livelihood if we're, maybe we're a mother at home taking care of children. That's our livelihood. You know, that's our work. That's, our con- that's, that's what we do. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean a paycheck or a Western view of it. It has to do with how we engage in the world, how we then are supported, how we're supported through that. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration fall under the samadhi section. And this can sometimes be called the development of the mind, mental discipline. This whole category can be called concentration. It can be translated in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's called meditation. The English terms are, are, are vary. But the idea is, is it includes effort, mindfulness, and concentration, which are ways that we develop the mind. The effort goes through different kinds of effort. I'll let you read those, but it's basically how do we avoid unwholesome states? How do we abandon unwholesome states that have arisen? How can we cultivate wholesome states and how can we maintain those good states, wholesome states that have already arisen? How do we apply our effort so that we direct ourselves along this path of practice? And then mindfulness can be mindfulness of the body, the feelings, the mind, the phenomena... And concentration describes a unification of the mind, a one-pointedness of attention. And mindfulness, concentration, and effort, they all happen together, but mindfulness, concentration, and effort are described specifically as being a set here. And there's a beautiful simile from the Visuddhimagga that describes mindfulness, concentration, and effort as being like the three friends who are walking down the path, and they enter a park. And in the park, they see a big tree, and it's in bloom. And one of the friends is going to go to a a party that evening, and he wants to have a garland of flowers to wear. And so he tries to reach for the flowers to start to gather them to make a garland. But alone, he can't reach the flower. So one friend gets down on the ground and on all fours and gives him his back so that he can stand up and then he can re- he's tall enough to reach the flower. But standing on his friend's back, he's, he's wobbling, and he can't quite grab the flowers. And so the other friend stands by and offers his shoulder as support. And so supported by one friend, effort, and stabilized and supported by the other friend, mindfulness, then concentration, one-pointedness, can realize its aim. And so these three together make up this aspect of the mental discipline or this aspect called concentration. When we think about the concentrated mind, the primary quality of the concentrated mind is described in the suttas as being fit for work. The Pali term is kamanata. And it's a, it's a quality of, of workability, so that the mind is kind of likened to gold where that is being melted and it's, it's made pliant and workable. It has to be purified and it has to be made pliable because you can't just work it if it's you know, too hot or too cold. It has to be quite right. And so the concentration aspects, when it gets balanced and is, um, you know, the fire's not too hot and it's not too cool, the gold's 
the gold's kind of the right temperature, the mind is developed in such a way that it is fit for work. And that's the primary assessment or, or, or a determination for right concentration is its applicability to work, its malleability, the way that it functions. And what do we fly concentration to? We apply it to experience. What do we experience? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. To lived experience. And then we apply that concentrated mind to lived experience, informed by right view. So we bring the whole path together as one. And in this sense, when the path is together as one, it can be understood that the whole path comes together in right concentration. I just want to see if I had any other quotes to share. Oh, there was a good one also on why, right, from the Visuddhimagga, on, on why right understanding and right thought are together. And the simile there is of a coin. A coin is placed on one hand, and the money changer wants to look at it on both sides, but he can't turn it over. So he has to use his other, his fingers to turn it over. He needs two hands to look at the coin on both sides. And like this, the right view, if he looks just right view, he's not going to see both sides. But with the support of right thought, he's able to turn it over and see the both sides. So they work together, like the ability to turn the, the coin to two sides with two hands. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.